institution of said cash. We're going to talk about cash actually tonight. Good evening, everybody. Way too many people in here tonight to be talking about the problems of capitalism, but that's where we're going. Icky. I thought it'd be a smaller crowd. I thought there'd be less damage involved. Lean in. Let's be fine. My name is Matt Moberg. This is the sermonic moment inside of the service where we take a moment to kind of root ourselves inside of the scripture. And we try to get our bearings for our Monday through Saturday life, ask questions, think and challenge old thoughts, that sort of thing. Molly, I'm looking at you right now. We've been playing phone tag. It's been a wonderful game thus far. I will call you immediately after the service. If you do not answer at this point right now, it will be personally offensive. Listen, before I say anything else about where we're intending to go based on our series, It's Not You, It's Everything, the book by Eric Minton, chapter four in particular, I want to make sure you hear this. This is uh, more important than anything I have to offer you tonight, that who you are is more important than what you do, even if what you do gets more attention than who you are. Please hear that. Who you are is more important than what you do, even if what you do gets more attention than who you are. I was thinking about that this past weekend when I was speaking with different um, community leaders inside of Minneapolis about Jalen Walker's murder in Akron, Ohio, and the 60 shots that went inside of his body and the handcuffs that came after the fact, for some reason, I couldn't cite you why, but I started thinking about George Floyd. And you remember a couple of years back when Floyd went down and our city went up. And do you remember the national media, how they spun the story of what went down here to make sense for the world out there? Do you remember how for some particular groups inside of said media, there was the story of well, you remember how he held the gun against the pregnant woman's stomach. There was that, that's what he produced right there. For others, it was scenes of, of him in Houston, Texas, with a Bible in hand and how he had been proactive in evangelizing to the lost masses of society. I want to suggest to you that both takes are dumb, and I'm tying it to this moment out of the gates right now because the fact that George Floyd had breath coming into his body that caused his chest to rise and fall. That is significant enough for you to be concerned about the value of his life. It is not dictated upon what he didn't do or what he did do. And, and I, I say that intentionally tonight because we are talking about capitalism. We are talking about chapter four, which pushes us to consider how the society that we are swimming inside of is internalized inside of our bodies with this hyper anxious, always present need to produce, contribute, make something of your life. E even like the, the sentence, um, he was a productive member of society. That's why it's a loss of life that we should mourn. In other words, he was endorsed by the capitalistic society of the United States of America. That's why this is a life that we should mourn. I'm asking us as a community tonight to consider the words that we use and the paradigms that we see through all things. I'm asking us to consider capitalism. I didn't mean to burst out of the gates like this. Honestly, that was not my intention, but I just have been thinking about it more and more, especially, truth be told, when we first started reading chapter four and we are thinking about like, well, I don't know if you, you read chapter four, Debbie, right? You're a leader of this community. Of course you did. And, but there's like, what do you speak of in regards to capitalism, right? Do you, do, you, um, do you paint it black and white and dismiss all the complexities inside, all the grays involved in the thing like capitalism? Or do you, uh, do you speak on content, the need to be, that's my first inclination. So I'm not trying to like, you know, 
criticizing. This is where I went first. Maybe we should talk about contentment. Maybe we should talk about being content, how that is an act of resistance towards the, the, the capitalistic drive for more and accumulation. And maybe, you know, like maybe that makes sense. But then there got to that point where I look out on this audience right now and I see a group of beautiful people, first and foremost, but then secondly, predominantly Caucasian variety, where I know a lot of your stories, well-educated, and so of course it would be cringy and both white for us to speak of contentment when capitalism, as it stands today, is absolutely devouring lives on the fringe of society that people that might not look like you. So we're not going to do that either. I do want to start with the story, though, tonight. Um, I'm going to make up this story, not me personally, but it's a fiction story that was once told by a man named Peter Rawls, a philosopher that I greatly respect, and he says this. Shortly after the death of Jesus, there was a group of unknown disciples who watched him be killed. They watched him be lynched. They watched the blood and the water and the air seep outside of his body. And they packed up the little that they had and they left for someplace unknown. They could no longer stay inside of the city for obvious reasons. And with heavy hearts and wet eyes, they left that place never to return as they traveled over the water in search of a new land to call home. And they found it. This isolated area on the, some distant shores that had yet to receive a proper name, that was the ideal space for a new community to be born. This new space where a community of Christ could actually root itself and practice the ways of Jesus. Here they had fertile ground, they had clean water, they had a nearby forest from which to harvest material needed to build a shelter, and it was absolutely stunning. This community that was now far from that hill in Jerusalem where they Today, in this practice on this island, in this particular place that had yet to receive a name, they vowed to each other to every single day that they had left inside of their tanks, they would keep the memory of Christ alive. How? By living in simplicity, by being committed to love above all else, forgiveness, just as Jesus, their rabbi, their leader, the son of love had taught them to do. This community lived in this space and in solitude for over a hundred years, practicing the ways that the Son of Love lived, even while they still mourned over the, the Son of Love's death. On one morning, they heard a rattling, some movement on a distant shore, and they started moving towards the woods that was leading to the beach, and there they found a group of missionaries coming fresh off of their boats who had reached the settlement that had been in solitary confinement, if you will, on this island far away. When the missionaries reached the group that had not spoken to anybody in there, they were completely amazed by what they had seen. In particular, they were amazed by the conversations at hand because they heard the group talk about Christ's ruin. Christ's ruin, Christ on the cross was the impetus behind them leaving, looking for a new land. They heard them speak about Christ's ruin but they didn't hear anybody speak about Christ's resurrection. And why would they? This group left on Saturday. Christ didn't leave his tomb until Sunday. This group left in the, in the wake of pain. They didn't know anything about the celebration of Sunday. And so the missionaries, they noticed this this strange phenomenon happening inside of this group and they gathered all the people together. They said, like, you guys, you ought to know what's what actually happened. 
For those of us who stuck around a little bit longer than you do, you ought to be filled in on the good news that you were deprived of. And so they get the town together. They bring everybody in the center and they tell him, he lives. He is risen. They tell him about Mary who thought she was talking to a gardener. They talk about John who ran faster than Peter. They talk about the women who brought spices to the grave. They talk about all of these things. He is risen. The death that you have been mourning, the sorrow that you have been carrying, let's turn that energy into a party because the death is no more. He is risen from the grave. He's no longer where you laid him. He is alive. And the group, the town, the community that sprung up on this distant island, they celebrated. They played music. They drank drinks. They enjoyed one another's company. How could it be that all these decades now we have been mourning a loss that has always been a gift because he is risen? The missionaries at hand had interrupted the life of this community. They, they, they were part of this festivity, but at one point, one of the younger missionaries noticed that the elected leader of the group that they stepped up on, he was missing, and this bothered him. So he goes out looking, and he says, like, where's, like, uh, where's our shepherd? Where's the leader of this tribe before we had arrived on these shores? And they noticed that he was in some distant hut. And so this young leader from the missionary group, he approaches him and he notices that the man is weeping loudly and praying without ceasing. And the missionary approaches him and said, what's wrong? Why are you actually in such sorrow right now? This is a season for celebration. Do you not know what today is all about? And the man looks up with wet eyes and a puddle of tears below his chin, and he says, I know exactly what today is about. I understand completely why you guys have come. I understand the good news that you all have brought. But I also understand that the cause for celebration, it comes with a different kind of cost. Because since we founded this community, we have followed the ways of Christ. We have loved even when it meant that we would lose. We have given even when it was well known that we had little to keep. We turned cheeks, we opened hearts, we walked slowly, we remained committed, and we did all this despite the belief that death had defeated Jesus and would one day come for us too. We stayed the course. The elder of this community, he got slowly to his feet and he looked at this young missionary compassionately in his eyes and he said, each day we have forsaken our lives for him because we judged him wholly worthy of the sacrifice, wholly worthy of our being. But now there's a party. Now in light of your news, I celebrate with you, but I also have a concern. I'm concerned that my kids and my kids' kids they also will follow Jesus. But not because of his radical life, his empathetic love, his open heart, his convictions that contested the ways of empire. No, not for those reasons, but selfishly to secure some sort of prize. And with this, the elder got up and he left making his way to the celebrations that could be heard dimly in the distance, leaving the missionary crouched on the floor 
welling up in his own kind of tears. I guess the question I come to ask as we build this sermonic bridge from story to sermon is, when you think about your lives and why you are in this room tonight, if you are a person who has pledged their allegiance to the son of love, what's the why behind what you are doing? Is that fair to ask? Why are you in this particular religious system? I know like we, we're more or less allergic to all religious systems and we're trying to figure out like the, the story of Christ is, is um, it's a benefit to all, regardless of your allegiance, whatever. But you're in this room and you're sitting here right now and you're listening to this sermon and you're like participating inside. What's your why behind what you are doing? Are you actually trying to bring about the kingdom of heaven in this place right here or are you securing a place in some we're out there. That's what Eric Minton's getting about in our series. We're in this book right now called It's Not You, it, It's Everything. And he talks about how capitalism in particular has shaped our understanding of eschatological futures, uh, where the whole thing is headed, the heavens, the hells, the aftermath of the story. We do this to get this. That man who was the leader of the village, he said, I am concerned. Yes, I see the celebration, I hear the music, I'm all here for it. But there's a concern in me that says that my kids will now depart from the ways that I lived because I was, I believed in this story. I, I did a podcast interview a little while back. I think I've told you guys this 10,000 times just because I want you to know that I'm worthy of actually being invited onto a podcast interview every now and then. It's not a big deal. It's an ego issue. I'm working on it right now. But this guy asked me, like, why after all this time do I still follow Jesus? And I told him that honestly, as an artist, like, I follow Jesus for artistic reasons. Hear me out. When I see the story of Jesus and the glimpse that we get through the Gospels, I love the brush strokes that he makes with his life. I believe in his story of empathy. I believe in his story of otherness. I believe in his story of self-sacrificial love. I believe that it's the truest story, not only in the way that it makes my jaw drop every time I read it, but because I've experienced it in flesh and blood. I follow Jesus because Jesus is my aesthetic. Jesus is the criterion through which I'm able to say that's beautiful. That's good. That's worthy. I follow Jesus primarily for artistic reasons. He is the criterion through which I identify that which is a beautiful life and I want to adhere to those principles laid out. What is your reason? That's, a, that's what I'm getting at when the what's your why behind your what? Why are you participating in the Sunday night service? You could be in any other place in the world right now, but you're here right now. Why? Is it for some land that's far out there or are you here for bringing that prized heaven, paradise place into this place right here? And what's keeping you from pursuing it? See, when I think about Jesus and the brush strokes he makes, I think about how those strokes are no longer allowed in our society today. In a culture like ours, where capitalism is the air that we breathe. We live and move and have our being inside of capitalism. And, and hear me out of the gates right now. I understand fully that whenever, by, I'll make it personal. Whenever I like run my mouth about capitalism in any particular way, people dismiss it, they get hot and bothered. Like there's another Bernie bro right there. Let's get him out of here. They'll start talking about the dangers of socialism. 
just to keep me from talking about the damages of, of, of capitalism, and I get it 100%. Whatever you are feeling right now, I understand that completely because I feel it in myself. This is not a black and white issue, it is complex. And in many ways in particular, John Keller, you and I have had conversations about this. I actually love what capitalism has to offer. I love the idea of opportunities. I love how it pushes us to innovate. I love the creative like, inspiration that is embedded inside of this system that makes us ask new questions of old settled answers and makes us pursue new avenues and what we thought was dead ends. I do love those things, but it would be in, in um, what's the word? Maggie, where's my, where's my communication? Disingenuous. It would be disingenuous for us to talk about capitalism in light of only its contributions and not of, of its costs as well. And so that's what we need to talk about tonight, especially when we consider as followers of Jesus, if we are people who pledge our allegiance to the son of love, and by that I don't mean a religious institution, but by that I mean the glimpse that we get in this solitary life of 33 years that we have. If we are people who say, based upon what we see in these pages, we want to model our life after, is our current way of being complicit, subconscious, or otherwise, is it consistent and congruent with the ways of the Christ? That's the question we're trying to unearth. That's what, that's what uh, um, Eric Minton in this book is trying to get us to ask. In many ways, he brings us up again and again, so don't mind me if I do the same, but he brings up, what's the guy's name? David Foster Wallace's speech at Kenyon University where he talks about these two young fish who are swimming in the water and an old fish comes upon them and says, good morning, how's the water? And the two youngsters swimming along for a while turn to one another and say, what the hell is water? For us as a community, it is imperative and it is urgently needed that we pause and name this is water. These are the things that we are swimming inside. These are the things that are swimming inside of us. And are those things within us and are those things around us consistent with our call of Christ? Turn with me if you have your Bibles. Nobody actually does. So if you have your electronic screens in front of you, to Matthew 25. Because there's this text that I want to read from you tonight as we consider what it means to be a Christian in a capitalistic society. Matthew 25, verses 31 through 40. This is Jesus capturing this moment. Let me preface it with this real quick. There are not a lot of texts in the scripture that are loaded with sentimentality, loaded with nostalgia. This is the first tattoo I got on my arm. The only actually scriptural tattoo I have on my arm. I remember sitting in the back pew of... Sanctuary Church, where Ephraim Smith, the pastor at the time, read this text and thought, this is not a Jesus that I knew about prior to. And I grew up in the church. I grew up in the church. And yet I had yet to be properly introduced to this Jesus who says that when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. He's talking about eschatological times. He's talking about what will happen when all that is happening has come to an end. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate the people from one another as a shepherd separates, shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He places the sheep on his right, goats on his left, and the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Four, I was hungry and you gave me food. 
I was thirsty, you gave me a drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. The righteous inevitably will answer saying, Lord, when? When did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you a drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them. Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you were doing it to me. What a profound voice moment that we have captured in the gospel of Matthew right here. You know, biblical interpretations, when we look at these ancient texts and these ancient languages, they're always loaded with socio-political meaning, implications. The things that we do with the text, they are tied to the paradigms that we hold in modern times. Which is why I say that to just say that I'm, I'm grateful for the ESV, which you are reading of right now. Because in the early part of the text right here, it has Jesus saying this, Before him will be gathered all of the nations. That's not common. If you open up your NIV, NRSV, other kind of Vs, you're going to find out that that's not common. Oftentimes in biblical interpretations, that word, despite it being translated nowhere near like this anywhere else in Matthew, it's translated as peoples, not nations. Why would they do that? Why would they change nations into peoples? Well, the question is, What kind of Jesus do you want? Because every kind of biblical interpretation comes with some kind of socio-political implication. So what kind of Jesus do you want? Why is it that they interpret it as peoples when it's supposed to be nations? ESV doesn't go that route. Well, if the kind of Jesus you want isn't one who is advocating for welfare, you neuter the word nations by replacing it with the word peoples. I mean, let me just give you a basic rundown here and tell you that libertarian ideology asserts that charity must be done by uh, individuals and churches at the very most. Government-funded help for the needy is like a mafia-run charity who will hurt you if you don't pay up. But this text right here, these words of the Christ right here, they go in a completely opposite direction. These words right here say that Jesus is talking not about individual peoples, but about an eschatological judgment for nations, a society, a system that we have propped up and perpetuated from time and time again. Jesus is talking about nations. And Jesus is asking the questions that if you do not care for the needy, you have no concern for me, and there will be consequences for such an action. There will be problems that come with that. Jesus says the nations, the governments, the systems we live and move and have are being inside of, if they neglect the least of these, well, they are neglecting me. No matter how many Bible verses they tweet or cross necklaces they wear, fidelity to Christ, according to the Christ, is measured by how you and your society care for those that you've been taught not to care about at all. The elderly, the weak, the infirm, the mentally and physically sick, those who just can't cope, those in debt, the addict, the homeless, the helpless, the hopeless, the marginalized, the ignored. If you want to find God, hear me now, right, church. If you want to find God, 
you need to run as fast as you can to the least of these. Because he's not missing words, that's where he is. That's where God is. Taken up home with the least of these. And we see that, you know, prior to Jesus, we learned firsthand, if you study the scripture from start to stop, that the God who is at the top of the tree rests alone at the bottom of the ladder. We see it where God is with a slave kicked to the curb by a jealous wife in Genesis. We see God moving with a barren woman desperate for a baby in 1 Samuel, moving with an unarmed band of slaves against an empire in the Exodus story, walking with eunuchs and foreigners and outcasts in Isaiah, advocating for widows and orphans and Janes. There are over 300 biblical texts that address matters of social justice and advocating for those who are the least of these, which instruct the faithful on how to think and treat and live with those who are on the margins. When Matthew writes this text right here and he captures the words of the Christ, he is doing so with the words of um, Proverbs 14, 31 in the background, where it says, those who oppress the poor and insult his maker, but he who is generous to the needy, it honors him. So real talk right now, I'm not an economist. I don't have the corner market on truth when it comes to particular conversations. I recognize the gray and the complexities inside. How are we as a nation doing? If we as a nation are held accountable for our actions to the least of these, how are we doing when it comes to the concern for the least of these? The poor, the marginalized, the disenfranchised. Please, you know, I, Debbie, we've talked about this before, but you know, Religion's weird, you guys, because sometimes it can be so rote and like routine where we are, we do this, we go there, we sing this, nice singing to my wife tonight, I love you, thank you for doing that, and then we go home and we eat our pizza and wait for the kids to go to sleep so we can watch Homeland or something of that sort. But what's put on top of us is the command of Christ to say that if you actually love me, Love me like I ask you to love me and care for the least of these. <sighs> Much of his life, he speaks about how individuals, we have to live with empathy and compassion and concern for those who are not of us, even those who are directly opposed us, our enemies. But also, as a nation, how are you caring for the least of these? How are you living according to that calling right here? And how is capitalism conflicted? with that calling to care for the least of these. I was talking with my sister-in-law about this the other day and we were up at the cabin and we were talking just kind of freely about like, yes, obviously capitalism has given birth to many great opportunities, innovations, awesome, love it. But also, it runs over a lot of lives. She brought up the instance of this man named Martin, tell me if I'm butchering his name, if anybody knows it more than me, Martin Shkreli. S-H-K-R-E-L-I, Martin Shkreli. She started talking about how one of the costs of prioritizing profits over people and individuality over collectivity is a man like Martin Shkreli. He is the CEO of Turing, a small startup of only really two main products. In September of 2015, the company announced that it was raising the price of the generic drug Daraprim from $13.50 to $750 a tablet an approximate 5,000% increase. Daraprim was widely used to treat complications from AIDS, among other diseases. 
It cost approximately $1 per pill to produce and had no competition. Anybody that wanted to buy Darabrim had to buy it from Turing, which led to the average cost of treatment for patients, put yourself inside of their shoes, rising from $1,130 to $63,000 a year. For certain patients, the cost can climb, or could climb as high as $634,000 a year. Obviously, when this was announced, this man was like ostracized, villainized, accosted inside of the public. And yet he remained unrepentant despite it all. Matter of fact, he said this when he looked back on what he had done. I probably would have raised prices higher. Actually, I could have raised it higher. Made more profits for our shareholders. That is my primary duty. Nobody wants to say it, nobody's proud of it, but this is a capitalist society, a capitalist system, and capitalist rules, and my investors expect me to maximize profits, not to minimize them, or go half, or go 70%, but to go 100% of the profit curve that we're all taught in MBA class. If you want to be successful in a system like this, you follow Shkreli's lead. That's what he's saying right there. Now, the temptation inside of Versailles is go like, well, he's an outlier. Like, obviously, he had a bad upbringing or something. Morality is not a high priority for him on the list. But that's just not true. Go further on in the healthcare industry alone, and you start to recognize that a, a company like Lynette in 2014, they were producing another jar, uh, uh, drug named Flufenazine. There's no way I'm saying that right. A drug that is used to treat schizophrenia is on the, wor schizophrenia is on the World Health Organization's list of most essential medicines. They moved that price tag from $43.50 to $870, a 2,000% increase. Valiant increased the price of its two leading heart drugs by more than 500% reportedly leaving the firm with gross margins of more than 99%. Debbie, what's the show that we like on Hulu? I haven't actually watched it yet, so I don't know if I share that affection with you. The drug show, Oxycontin. Dope, dope sick. Dope sick. Purdue Pharma's decision to aggressively promote the prescribing of Oxycontin was, at least in the short term, hugely profitable. And so again, if we are people of the Christ who are trying to follow in his ways, I have to ask the question, why does our system consistently ensure that the least of these will take on the most of the loss? And it's not limited to healthcare. We know this, right? Since December 2015, when the Paris Climate Agreement was signed, for example, the world's fossil fuel companies have spent more than a billion dollars lobbying against controls on greenhouse gas emissions. Take this very literally, folks. This matters. I know it's boring, but stay with me because it matters. When you consider that campaign, this is nothing more than a single-minded focus on profit maximization, which would seem to require that firms not only jack up drug prices, but also fish out of our oceans. Destabilize the climate. Fight against anything that might raise labor costs, including public funding of education and healthcare, all so that the few on the top get the most, or the most on the bottom get the least. I'm going long, so I need to find a way to wrap this up, at least move closer to a conclusion. It all leads to this cartoon right here, though, that I always think is fascinating. These are people like long after the death of, of capitalism, when we have moved on to something at least more rebranded and redeemed. There's this guy that, who says, yes, obviously the planet got destroyed. But for a beautiful moment in time, we created a lot of value for our shareholders. That's where we are. It's comedic, but it's terrifying at the same time. 
Why is it that we as Christians, that uh, some of our loudest people inside of this tribe say this is a Christian country, and yet the poor continue to be marginalized further while the wealthy get pushed further on the top? Why is that? Oh my gosh, sometimes, I'm going to abandon notes right here. Debbie, pull me back if you need to. Why is it that, maybe I should go back to notes. We're sincere, right? Is there any kids in the room? Good to see you, brother. I'll watch my words then. (laughs) We're sincere in our convictions. We believe that we are saying we are showing up here for a purpose. We're not just robots going through a machine. We believe that Jesus is right when he says that empathy is the way forward. Compassion matters. I don't care if your society and the capitalistic system that you've been forced to operate inside of says that selflessness is stupid and that altruism is absurd. I don't care if that all is written off as a loss that is the way for you because you serve a God who chose to die instead of kill. You serve a God who rests at the top of the tree but lives on the bottom of the ladder. And so what does that actually mean for you? I should have honestly, when I think about it, maybe in hindsight, because Debbie and I, we, on Monday mornings, we go and we go, and Debbie usually sits me down and goes like, this is where you really messed up, Matt. You could have been better. <laughs> no, stop, Debbie, not now, I have the mic. But part of me wishes like, if I read Matthew 25 to you, that should be sufficient. You know? I don't know why I'm getting emotional right now, but that should be sufficient for all of us. When we think about how we are people who are practicing fidelity to a kingdom of liberation and love, we're all are welcome, we're all are lifted up, but we have a specific bias for the marginalized, for the poor, for the forgotten, for those who are cast to the side of society and outside of the concern of the mainstream. When you think about how we are people who pledge allegiance to that kingdom and not to any kind of capitalistic society, our our, our companies shouldn't be the same. Our spending shouldn't look the same. What we call and do consciousness every day shouldn't be the same. We would be able to say stop when capitalism tries to internalize inside of us and convince us that what we produce is who we are. That shouldn't be the same. Dr. King was right when he said in his 1964 Nobel Peace Prize speech when he said, listen, any great country, now, any great individual always is concerned with how is my life impacting the least of these? There are 10,025 different conversations we could have around capitalism. I am personally not equipped to have them. But I do believe that how you and I, in this moment right now that many are calling late, what is it, late stage capitalism, where we see consumerism, consumerism leading to our own personal demise, This need to always produce more, accumulate more, be more than we actually are. When we say George Floyd's life mattered because he did a missionary trip five years ago in Houston, or George Floyd's life didn't matter because he held a gun up at one point. When we live inside of this society that says what you do matters more than who you are, this ought to be a freaking community that says that's not true. We will look one another in the eyes and say who you are, period. Imago Dei, period. The image of God is in you, period. That's all that matters. You're significant. You have value. You don't need to produce one thing in your life. You're enough. I see you. I want you. I celebrate you. We're better with you. Now what could we do for those around us? 
10,025 different conversations we can have around capitalism, but Jesus is the final word. Whatever you do for the least of these, that's what you're doing for me. So you can play along, grab your rules, play charades, play Christian, wear the cross, do the tweets, say all the things that you need to say, change your Facebook profile frame. Is that what it's called, Shmeen? No, yeah. I guess I'm out of touch. You can do all the right moves, play all the right plays, but what are you doing for the least of these? Will you pray with me? God, we are inside of a system. There is no perfect system. But you call us to be different, God. You call us to not conform to the patterns of this world, but to be about the liberation, to be about works of empathy, to be about compassion, even to those we, we don't feel any compassion towards. Jesus, on your Sermon on the Mount, you say, blessed are the poor. Not someday will they be blessed. It is not prescriptive, it is descriptive. If we want the future, God, that we believe you are calling us towards, we need to struggle with the realities of our present. And so give us courage to do so. We love you, Jesus. Be with us in our struggle. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It was during my years in seminary that I actually realized at a deeper level how countercultural Jesus was. That what it meant to follow Jesus was countercultural even in some of our churches. And it's never been so clear to me than in the last six years that it really is countercultural to follow Jesus and that there's a time in our life where we have to say as the church, who is my allegiance to? The Jesus of scripture who says, what you do for the least of these, you do for me, or the Jesus in a country that says, the more you have, the better you are. A culture that worships consumerism, worships capitalism. I loved your message tonight, Matt. I loved it because it's convicting. I loved it because it rings true. And when you ask the question, like, why do we gather here? We gather because we need to be reminded. I don't know about you guys, but I need to be reminded. I need to remember what it means to follow Jesus. I need to remember and be reminded about generosity and empathy and love and that what we do for the least of these is the calling on our life. Because it's really easy to just get caught up in our day-to-day, doing it, getting it done, being better, having more. So thanks for that message, Matt. Because I too felt emotional in it. Because it matters that we gather here on Sunday night. It matters that we're in a small group. It matters that we are connecting and we are struggling and we are trying to figure out what it means to actually follow the Jesus that calls us to be generous, to be empathetic, and to love. And on Sunday nights when we share in communion, it is a time that we can pause. And we can be reminded of that Jesus, the Jesus that sat with his disciples the night before he died and took bread and broke it. 
and said, this is my body broken for you. When you eat this, remember me. And then Jesus took wine and he poured it into a cup and he said, this is my blood shed for you, the new covenant. When you drink from this cup, remember me. So as you take your cup and you peel it back and you find that wafer, please hear these words. The body of Christ broken for you. And as you drink from the cup, the blood of Christ shed for you. And in this moment, we can remember a Jesus who taught us what it meant to be generous and loving and empathetic and to care for the least of these. Would you please stand? And together, we pray the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Our God, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. I had a friend recently. He was a few years back. And I think he was kidding around. But Shmeev, you're going to think this is funny. He said, he goes, Matt, if like you have so much beef with capitalism, you might as well just write in lowercase letters from now on. Like that would be the act of resistance. That problem solved, say no more. It's dumb, but it made me laugh at the time. I wish the systems that we are inside of and the stories we try to reconcile with them were as easy as that. I had literally, as I went back to my pew after that message, 24 more slides that I wanted to show you, but we didn't get there, Gino. We didn't get there. I guess I just want to think about, as we leave here tonight, because I rambled on too long. I had a conversation with a friend who's a professor at TCU who talked about how evangelical Christianity out of the gates was very big on like everything is a spiritual test. You know what I mean? About to rise, spiritual test. Don't look at that, spiritual test. Don't drink that, spiritual test. All of those things, yes, sure. But expanding the parameters of what is a test. So a lot of the reaction has been like, let's get rid of that stuff right away, all that weird pressure. I would like to bring it back a little bit. Not as a test, but just as like an awareness. Is the ways that we are living our lives, spending our time, spending our money, like dictating the choices and the convictions that we carry, are they consistent with the, the views that we profess? Are they consistent with the beliefs that we hold? If we pledge allegiance to the son of love, do our lives actually look like the brush strokes that he employed in his? Is your life good news? For the poor. Wow. I wish I didn't say that out loud. Is your life good news for the marginalized? Is your life good because you're here? Does it make those on the margins, does it put them in a better spot? Make them more visible, provide more dignity, offer more aid. Is your life good news? 
for those that you've been trained not to care about. One of the earliest questions that scripture asks is, am I my brother or my sister's keeper? And the answer is redundant, but it's absolutely yes. And so we need to care for how our brothers and sisters are being kept, regardless of the system we are inside of right now. Will you close your eyes? As we close out this service and we go home with these thoughts and we ask new questions for our families, will you close your eyes, hold out your hands and just remember who you are is more important than what you do. Friends, no matter who you are, what you've done, who you love or what you've lost, where you've gone or the place that you've stayed, know that there will always be a seat here for you at the table because you, by the very fact that air goes into your lungs, makes your chest rise, goes out of your mouth. By the very fact that you are here, you are a beloved child of God and we will act accordingly. You belong. We love you. We'll see you next Sunday night. Go in peace.